Today I'll be reading for you and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13, through the end of the chapter, verse 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for this song that he is singing before us of your praises and of your goodness and of your greatness, of your fierce love for your people. We thank you, Father, that he has brought us with him before you now, before your word to give you glory in the hearing and the preaching of your word and to bring good and goodness and rest to your people. We thank you, Father, that this is so by the power of your Son and by his reign, and we pray that you would now continue to reign in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you were here a couple of Sundays ago, you would have noticed that I was not able to finish my passage. This was a part of the passage from two weeks ago. It was a little maybe um, ambitious for me to assume that I could get um, all of verses 10 through 18 in in one sermon. Um, I, got, I kind of parked in Psalm 22, and I've been kind of going back and forth in my mind whether or not that was biting off too much, and uh, hopefully I've learned a little bit of my lesson, but hopefully it was also very helpful for you to have that background of Psalm 22. I do believe that um, the Christian Hebrews would have had a, a very thorough understanding of Psalm 22, even more than I continued to have, and I thought it was good for us to go in that direction, but I do need to kind of recap and back up and finish that particular passage, and then I will start off where Maharus left off next week. But if you remember, the, the, the trajectory that we've been going on so far in Hebrews is that Christ is superior over all things. That is the very point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make. And he starts with angels. And because angels was something that mesmerized the Christians then and should, I think, continues to mesmerize us now. And when we think about glorious creatures, that Jesus is superior over all those things. And that all these things, from angels to even little microscopic creatures, all serve this great purpose of magnifying his glory, and namely for the purposes of our salvation. Angels and everything. 
So we are astounded at that. We are astounded that all of creation would be for those purposes. And when we were still trying to learn and understand that all of these things that you see, all of these people here and everything that's going on right now and all over the world is for the purposes of his glory and for our salvation. But we're astounded even more as we go further into chapter two that we learn in verses, verse nine that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So here we have this great exaltation of who Christ is over all things, and that that exaltation is because of the suffering of death. And then in verse 10, that he is the founder of our salvation that was made perfect through suffering. So we have these very, what seems to be based upon how we would normally think and maybe feel that this exaltation of his superiority is actually crowned with this thing that we typically despise, which is suffering and even shame. That the reason why he has this great superiority is that it is also covering him with the suffering that he took on for our salvation. If you're not astounded by that, what seems to be a contrast, but it was not a contrast in the glory of Christ, that it is what actually brings him his exaltation, then you need to be astounded by that reality. So the last time I preached, I talked about in verses 10 through 11 that it was this suffering sanctification, that our sanctification had to come through this suffering. And then verses 11 through 12 that Jesus is singing. Now, I remember the first time that I came to the realize that he was doing this, that Jesus says that I'm going to sing before the brothers of your glory, that Jesus would sing for us. So when we think about how we have a God that his son would sing before us as the praises of his own father, that should give you this understanding about Jesus that is, again, a very astounding, that he sings to us, that he sings to the Lord and us, and he sings our song. That was the highlight point of that Psalm 22 is both Jesus' song, it is a prophetic song that he is to sing, that he is to be the very epitome of, but that he is, the reason why that is so is because he is singing our suffering song. That he took the songs that are dear to our heart of our plight and he became the epitome of it in the fullness of who he is on the cross. And he sings that song at the very moment of his death on our behalf. So today we want to continue with what the writer of Hebrews has done here for us is that he's given these snapshots that should be reminders for us of what these Old Testament passages are highlighting. He's doing it again twice today. And it is one in the, I will put my trust in him and behold, I and the children God has given me. That Jesus is continuing to sing this before us And so in verse 13, we see that there is this speech of this strength of trust in God. But we see there in the second part of verse 13 that it's a strong speech of both encouragement and refuge, but also warning. And then as we go through with verses 14 and 18, the writer of Hebrews is kind of wrapping this all up and showing how Jesus sharing this 
suffering on our behalf, sharing the plight of our lives and our death that he was able to bring us into and share with us his very own glory. So again, he is a superior leader for a superior destination because of this superior achievement. He is for whom all and by whom all things exist, the founder of our salvation. And he takes us to this destination, bringing many sons or children, all of us, to his glory. And he does this, and it says that it was, it was fitting that he, had, he does this by achieving this perfection through suffering. And then he says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that there's this unity that he brings us into, that as he takes on our flesh and death, he brings us to his glory and his communion with him. And it says that he's not ashamed, that he's not ashamed to do this, that he takes a great delight to actually become like us that he would take the suffering on and sing before us. And then these two particular um, references today is to remind us that he is the one who trusts the Father and he brings us with him. Does anybody know who Ernest Coulter is? That name sound familiar to you? Um, Back in 1907, that may be one reason why you're not familiar with him, because he was around in 1907. He was a court clerk in New York City, and he was watching all of these young guys having to come in because of, I guess, petty thefts or maybe some greater crimes. He was seeing all of these young men come through the courts, and he realized what these men need is some kind of mentor, some kind of person to help. He must have seen that there was a fatherlessness, or at least if they had a father, that they didn't have a very good father. And so he started an organization called Brig Brothers Association. And about the same time, there were these Roman Catholic ladies called Ladies of Charity that they were also noticing these girls coming through the courts, and they realized they need some kind of mentor, and they started an organization called Big Sisters International, and they both happened about the same time in 1907, and today you may have heard of the Big Brothers and Big Sisters of America, and what this is is that there are these people who volunteer to help out people who do not have those kind of mentors. The very first time here with, uh, with Ernest Coulter, what he did, he he was a retired lieutenant colonel from the military, and he became a, a court clerk, and he had a lot of connections, and so he started going around to businessmen and, and different successful men, and he encouraged them to, to volunteer, and he was able to get 40, around 39, 40 volunteers to take on just one young man or boy to be a big brother to. He saw that that was what was needed. And, and you can tell that, that, that when we think about a big brother, I remember my, my, I had a, a half stepsister, I think, no, half adopted sister, something like that. I can't remember exactly how it goes. My family's kind of messed up. But she used to, um, and she still does it today when I talk to her, um, in light of my, my adopted brother, 
he'll say, well, she'll say, well, big brother needs to tell little brother <laughs> to do this or that. She'll, whenever she wants me to, to do something to encourage my, my brother, she'll, she'll say, big brother needs to do this. That big brother has this responsibility to take care of his little brother. And usually it's, 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 he's in trouble or he needs to be in trouble. And so there's this responsibility. And, and we know that there is this this idea that big brothers are both one who cares and defends, but also could be one who admonishes. He's an extension of hopefully what the father is ultimately trying to do in the home. We see in Proverbs verse 17 of chapter 17, a friend loves at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. I sometimes joke that that means that brothers cause adversity because I see brothers fighting, but it actually is meaning very much that is a heightened sense of friendship that a, a friend loves at all times, but a brother is born to assist in adversity, to help in times of difficulty. And we see here that Jesus is not ashamed to be our big brother. He is the epitome of a big brother to us. And when we think about who he is and that he is, he is the son and he is our savior and he is our Messiah and he is our, the husband of the bride, but he's also the big brother. And here I believe that the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to, to really have a great and firm understanding of what that means for Jesus to be our big brother so the first thing he does is he highlights Psalm 18, which is very interesting. Um, I don't, I, I, I'm having to trust um, pastors and commentators and, and um, theologians before me that they've all landed, and I guess there's been some kind of historical connection with the church to always understand that verse 13 where it says that I will put my trust in him, that that is a reference of Psalm 18, which is interesting because in the English translation of Psalm 18, it never says the word trust. So you go look and read Psalm 18, it's not there, but you can get very clearly that it is a proclamation of trusting God. Now, I'm not going to go through all of Psalm 18, but I want to hit some highlights of Psalm 18 for you because I think that this is what we would need to have as we think about Jesus being our big brother Psalm 18 is a beautiful picture for us to understand what Jesus is doing as our big brother. And here he is trusting the father. A big brother should be an extension of a good father's love for his children. And here Jesus is doing that. And it says that in the very beginning of Psalm 18, it talks about that he loves the Lord. That he loves his father. And so you have, if you go through the first three verses of Psalm 18, you'll see this back and forth. It says, you'll see what the psalmist is, is, is doing, and then you see what he is calling the Lord. He says, I love you. You are my strength. I take refuge in you. You are my rock. I call upon the Lord. He is my refuge and stronghold. I praise the Lord. He is my shield. And I am saved by the Lord. He is the horn of my salvation. He is the power of salvation. So it starts out with this doxology of this trust, this, this passion for the Father. 
Verses 4 through 6 then immediately shows us that he is encountering death, destruction, the snares of the devil. And his response to that is to call upon the Lord, to cry to the Lord. And the Lord's response to him is that he hears. He is showing us that the Lord hears our cries. And so when we are facing death and destruction, when we are faced with suffering, it is okay to cry. It is right and necessary for us to call upon the Lord and we are being shown by our big brother that the Father will hear us and he will respond. I do need to read 7 through 15 because there's no way that I can describe the response of the Father for those who cries better than the words themselves. I cannot even highlight it because here you see this doxology, then you see the death and destruction and the suffering, the snares that the writer is caught up with, and then after he cries and calls and the Lord hears, get how the Lord responds. Verse 7 of Psalm 18. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also, the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode a cherubim and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water out of the brightness before him. Hellstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the most high uttered his voice hellstones and coals of fire and he sent out his arrows and scattered them he flashed forth lightnings and routed them then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke O lord at the blast of the breath of your nostrils he sent from on high and he took me and he drew me out of many waters One verse too far there. But this is the response of the Lord. And and we know that this is not only the response of the father, but it becomes the response of the big brother, the very son of God for us, because he is the most high. Here he is the, the one who is our representative in trusting the father's salvation and then takes on the responsibility of our salvation and becomes an extension of that power. Of the Father, as He is the one who is the Most High, coming after us. And He takes us, as verses 16 through 19, He takes us, He draws us, He rescues us, He supports us, He brought us, He again rescued us in salvation. And then the interesting thing is, you read verses 20 through 24, it highlights. And this is where we know that this is Jesus' psalm, that it is because of his righteousness, his cleanliness, his obedience to the law, his law-keeping, his blamelessness, that the Father responds in such a way. We know that we cannot sing that, apart from the fact that our big brother has done this for us. 
And he, just as he sang our song on the cross in Psalm 22, we now get to sing Jesus' psalm because we have his blamelessness. We have his righteousness. We are counted, now this is crazy, we are counted as those who have obeyed the law. That's who we are considered as before the Father. How many of you have obeyed the law perfectly in your life? <laughs> I know when we sing this psalm, and sometimes when we say this psalm, aren't you uncomfortable when it says that he saves us because of our righteousness, because I have done what is right? It's, it's uncomfortable to sing that because we know in our heart that is not us. But Jesus allows us to sing that song and not get struck down dead <laughs> for lying. Because it is his righteousness. And then we see what is going on in verse 25 through 30, that it is his mercy, his purification of our sins, that he is making us humble, and he has made our our way full of light. He has become our proof because he is our shield and our refuge. And then the rest of the psalm is just this continual praise, this meditation, this recalling of his greatness, of his all. And his goodness, it is a chewing on the wonders of who the Lord is. And Jesus is singing that before us. He had to trust the Father so that we could trust the Father. In our condition, what was the word you used, Maharus? That the direction that we're going in, you had a word that you mentioned during, uh, that you like, the... Interpose. that we were, the direction that we were going in, there was no hope for us to be able to turn and go into a different direction. But because our big brother came into our direction, which was to face death, which was to face destruction, because he came and stepped in our path, we now have the ability to follow his direction. In 1949, George Orwell published a book, 1984. Have you all read 1984? Familiar with it? Well, one of the things in that particular book is that there was this idea of big brother is watching you. If you recall that, and there's even like a little poster of someone looking at, I don't know if it's an eyeball or a person, but it's like big brother is watching you. And, and a lot of people today were looking at our situation of surveillance and we're thinking, you know, George Orwell was a prophet. <laughs> we're being watched everywhere we go. Right now my phone is recording me and my iPad is recording me and, and all of yours are recording me. So I'm sure everyone is being seen because the idea is, and it's interesting how this is where that, that terminology came from, the big brother is watching, because it's actually a kind of a perversion of the faithful big brother. It's this idea that this one of authority, this one of ability that, you know, a lot of times when we think about a big brother, they should be watching over us, taking care of us. Um, but here that the government becomes big brother, he is watching us in a sense where we're supposed to look up to him, but he has this kind of sneaky... Um, endeavoring element where he is watching over us for his own selfish purposes. And so we, we get the gist, though, that there is this powerful entity that is watching us. Well, in the next particular portion of that verse where it says, Behold, I and the children God has given me, that comes out of Isaiah chapter 8. 
And it's here where we see through 11 through 22, we see this interesting contrast because we see this, this wording that we see that, that Jesus is, a, we're part of his family and a part of his refuge. But, but when he comes in that position of a true and faithful good big brother, he is a warning. There is fierceness. There is this strength. And that's something that is good to think about when you think about the father's fierceness and a big brother's fierceness is that he's, he's going to be protective of his children, but he's also going to be protective of truth and goodness. And that strong protection should be a warning, should be a warning to us, not quite the same way that, that Orwell was going, but it should be a warning to other people. And so we, we know that that sense is inside of that 1984 novel, but that's because a big brother has strength. And it should be a scary kind of strength, but for us it is called to be our refuge. Reading out of Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 22, it says, For the Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So we see that there is these strong words. A good big brother is going to give us strong words of warning to keep us on the correct path. But that same strong word of warning is pointing to the contrast of what the world is doing. Don't do what they're doing. This, the conspiracies that they're all caught up in and, and their conclusions of what's going on in the world, don't let that be your conclusions. And the things that they are fearing, the things that they're all anxious about, don't let that be your anxious ways. But instead, remember what Dad has said. Remember what the Father and, and he, what He has warned us. Remember the ways of the Father and the righteousness of the Father. Let that be your honor because He is holy. Not just because He is frightful, but because He is holy. Now, there are plenty of conspiracies going around nowadays. And unfortunately, our conspiracies about the government are becoming more... Um, Nonfiction, <laughs> and, and 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 but we all, but a lot of times even even in that we can sometimes become fearful because we start seeing like good grief look at what they're doing that you know they're, they're they've got all these plans and they and and the leaders and and the liberals and all you know they're doing all of these things and after a while when you start seeing the realities come through and there's been a lot of conspiracies in the last. Two months that have become that have come out to be true. I mean, when we think about just you know the things with with COVID and Fauci and you know the things that are going on in Europe, it's like there's just so many of them. It's like, and, it, and what that does is like, wow, they must have a lot of power and control, and they must be doing all these things. And what does that do? That causes anxiety, and it causes fear. And so not only are we not to adopt the things that the world is consumed with, we're not, we're not to adopt even, a, the, or even where the conspiracies are right and we see that they're up to doing bad things, we're not even to fear that. We're not to fear them. 
But instead, we are to put our focus on the Father. We are to put our focus on the example of our big brother. We are to put our focus on Christ and the calling of his reign. Do not get so caught up in all of these things. I'm not saying that it's not, you know, that you shouldn't watch the news or listen to the news and you shouldn't be making conclusions and maybe you shouldn't be being wise and making some plans. I mean, I, you don't want to be, you know, if, if things are falling in the economy or falling in the international scene, you don't just kind of just you know, be flipping about it. But to become anxious about it is not our calling. We are to be wise as serpents, but we're to keep our eyes on the fact that Jesus has accomplished peace, the dove. To be gentle as dove, that, we would, that our hearts would be gentle, that we would be secure in him. And the only place that we wouldn't have security in him is if we are opposing him. Because further in that same chapter, it says, and he will become a sanctuary for us. He is our refuge because of what the brother, our big brother has done. He is a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel in their unfaithfulness. And the trap and the snare that they should be worried about is not the ones of the enemies, but of their own sinful hearts. And many stumble on Jesus because of it. And they shall fall and be broken. But then we have here, again, the big brother telling us through the prophet of Isaiah saying, Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord. Who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob? And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. What we have here is we see that there is a synonymous meaning of the word trust and wait. That if we trust the Lord, there will be automatically this waiting. That's the hard part, right? Like we're all good if it's like trusting the Lord. You know, it's like when, when we have little Jay there and he's in the, in a, in the pack and play and he, he has to be there for a few minutes because something went sideways. And, and we come over and we say, now say please. And he's like, okay, please. He's good with that because he knows we'll immediately pick him up. And that's the kind of trust that we have. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm good with trusting the Lord as long as you deliver right now. You know, if you say, if you said, say please, and then you can say, okay, I'll be over there in a few minutes, what's going to happen? It's going to break down, <laughs> it's going to fall apart. Well, our trust in the Lord, we're taught by our big brother here that we have to wait on the Lord. That is something we see throughout even all of the Psalms that this trusting in the Lord has this extension of time. And it seems to be harsh that we would have to wait like this, but it is a purpose that the Lord has because he is bringing his children to the Lord. And he is being we, by us, that happening to us, by our big brother, if you can imagine this, kids being in a fight, and then the big brother has to come in, and he does something, and he, he shows a fierceness, and he, he rescues the children out of their adversarial moment, that it's becoming a sign to others 
of what kind of big brother there is. So as we are having to wait and trust in the Lord, you need to be mindful that the Lord is showing forth his glory and his fierceness. That's a hard thing. You might, you might think, well, I, I don't like having to be a part of that script of having to be that kind of sign. But that's the way the Lord does show forth his power and his glory. We are a witness to the other children and to the enemies of God. That two-edged sword of an encouragement of hope and salvation, but also an example and a sign of judgment to come. That is what we're doing. We often just think that it's just, just us and our suffering. It's just our difficulty, and this is difficult. I wish God would stop this, or he would just go ahead and quickly answer this so we can move on with our lives. And we often sometimes can be pious enough to think, Lord, you know, you need to do this just so we can get on you know, doing stuff for you, not realizing that it is actually the suffering that is a part of that furthering of our sanctification and a proclamation to other people. That's a difficult thing for us to see, but you have to understand that the big brother is not just showing his fierceness. He's had to show forth. What is it that crowned him with glory? He doesn't say that his glory was crowned upon him because of his fierceness. It was because of his suffering. He took, he's taking on our suffering for us. And so therefore, as he is making this exchange for our glory, we also have to take on what the big brother does, that we have to... He's our example. We have to follow the footsteps of the brother. We have to follow the footsteps of his suffering. And what he tells us to do again and again, even here in Isaiah, a second time, to the teaching and to the testimony. It is according to the word that we go and dwell upon and we wait. As we wait upon the Lord, we go to his word and we wait upon him. We see these different contrasts again here as his family and refuge and hope. We are with his strong hand upon us. It is a strong hand that is upon us in goodness and in refuge. It does warn us. If you can imagine, I sometimes do this to the kids. I'll, I'll put my hand on their shoulder, shows that I care about them. I'm protecting them and I squeeze a little bit, <laughs> a little bit of pressure there. So I love you this much. <laughs> and it's an interesting combination of both my protection and my strength. We're not to be in dread because of Jesus. We are to honor him because of his holiness. We are in his sanctuary. We are not to trust the world, not to be all caught up in their conspiracies, not to be in fear of the world. We don't want to be those that, this, that Jesus is a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. We want to get out of our snares and traps of sin and be free. And again, we're remembering two times the teaching and the testimony of the Lord. This strong hand is his strong word because he is a strong and trustworthy brother. We can trust him at his word. 
That is why he has done these things is so that we can trust him. We have the power and the ability as an example before us. What is a big brother? Well, a big brother is one who has already plowed that path for us, right? He's had the same father instructing him and and disciplining him and putting him and teaching him. And he's, he's faced those particular trials. That's the great thing about having a big brother. You're not having to figure it out for yourself. He's already been there and done that. Well, here he has already been there and done that with the biggest enemy ever, which is sin and death. And he's already plowed that path for us. We can trust him when he turns around to us and he says, keep following me. Trust me. Trust the father's word. Trust the father's goodness. Trust the father's holiness. I will bring you through this. The suffering that you suffer is light compared to the burden that I have taken on for you. Then we see in verse 14, we see it all being summarized for us. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, we share in flesh and blood with our big brother. He himself likewise partook of the same things. He's been there and that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now, I want to just stop here for a second and think about this word destroy because this could be a bit of a hang-up for us because we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You just said that our big brother has destroyed the one who has the power of death. I know with certainty Satan is still on me. He is still prowling around. He is still deceiving me. He is still harassing me and oppressing me. What's this mean that he is destroyed? Well, really, the Greek word there means to disarm, to deprive, to nullify, to neutralize. Yeah, he still is not full in his final judgment. He has not been fully bound, but he has been neutralized. He has been nullified. He is disarmed. If you've ever seen the movie... Equalizer, there's a scene there where the good guy finds one of the bad cops and he gets him to fess up. He's about to kill this bad cop. And then he just takes the bad cop and he takes them through to get some other bad cops and to get other bad guys. And he's just using him. He's just, he's just using this guy and he's just nullified. I mean, he's, he's just basically disarmed. He's truly disarmed. He doesn't have a gun. And he, and, he, and he looks like the fool, but he's just using him to continue to conquer over his enemies. That's the reality of Satan today. That's a scary thing for me to stand here because I don't think Satan likes that. It's scary for me because I'm thinking, okay, he's going to hit me like a brick. <laughs> and, but, and if he does, it's for the, my sanctification. It's for the glorification of the Father. That anything he does to me, anything he does to you, is only for the purposes of continuing to conquer. Because he's been nullified. Even though he still exists, and even though he still harasses, that even in that harassment and in that suffering, it is for the purposes of his continual conquering over all things. Because in verse 15, and I will deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We're no longer slaves. For surely it is not angels that he helps, 
But he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps his brothers and his sisters. He is our big brother. He didn't become just an angel. He became man. He became our brother. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. You're starting to see here Isaiah chapter 8 again that this righteous one had to become the brother and that's where the mercy comes in. That is where we have this exchange now. We're having this exchange of our suffering was put on him and now... We have this propitiation, this transfer. Our sins were put on him and his righteousness was put on us. Verse 18, for because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we see here at the end of that particular chapter that we have this identification with Christ because he is our big brother, but we know that we're still going to have temptation. But because he is taking it on and he became the one who conquered over temptation, he's the one who conquered over suffering, he's the one who conquered over sin and death, he is able to help us when we are being tempted and when we are suffering. Then it makes sense when we see what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 when he says, So then, brothers... We are not debtors. We are not slaves, as the writer of the Hebrews says. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Did I tell you where that was? Romans 8, chapter 12. I don't know if I mean, chapter 12. Chapter 8, verse 12 through 18. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put, all, you put to death the deeds of the body. See, this is why we're still going through this process of his sanctification. And you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with our big brother, Jesus Christ. But don't stop to hear. And this is tough. This is a tough verse, but it should be an encouraging verse at the same time. Provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Jesus Christ is exchanging all of these things. And we get to be able to be considered children of God. We are adopted now. And have the same position and place and inheritance of Jesus Christ. But we also now have the same calling of our big brother. The big brother doesn't just come and and save us. He says, and now follow me. Now do what I'm doing. Trust the father like I have trust the father. Suffer now for a season. 
And know that you will be glorified. That you will be exalted as I am exalted. That this suffering in time will even be a delight to you. That you have the privilege to suffer for my name's sake. As you come to this table to know that we are called to take and to eat him and to drink him. To take Jesus to to look at our big brother as what he has done. And we are to take on that same calling. Through repentance and faith, we understand that he has died for our sins. But as we continue in communion with each other, we know that we are taking on his calling. We get to wear his clothes. That's what big brothers do, right? They pass down their clothes to their little brothers. We get to wear his royal robe. And sit at his royal table and eat this royal food. And for now, in this season, this is to nourish us so that as we are suffering, we can be comforted that he has accomplished the work already. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father,